0: Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 43, The Bear Blows First. On the 3rd of September, 1915, the morning calm of Petrograd was shattered by the arrival of the Imperial Motorcade. A cavalcade of blue sedans, each adorned with the two-headed eagle of the Romanovs, passed through the main road towards the Imperial Palace. To the residents of the capital, this was a surprise event. They were not told the Tsar was returning. The last they had heard was that the Tsar had gone north. Events at the front needed his attention. That was four months ago, when the fortunes of war turned decisively against them. That May, Russia had been dealt a monstrous blow, and combined Austro-German army had torn its way into Galicia, bursting the Polish salient, causing a total collapse of the front line. Over the following weeks, city after city fell to the advancing enemy. Prezmysel, Lemberg, Kovno, Warsaw, and Brest-Litovsk were abandoned, and the army was powerless to stop the torrent. Some stayed and fought, while others dropped their rifles and fled. Entire divisions melted under the heat of the guns or surrendered en masse. In desperation, stockpiles of foodstuffs, shell, and guns were left behind as spoils for the advancing army. To the outside observer, Russia was crumbling and the twilight of Tsarism had arrived. But beneath the firestorm was a certain calm. As sure as history, the retreat also symbolized the strength of Russian resolve. Villages, towns, and provinces were given up, which ensured the army's survival. Russia had bent, but she had not been broken. As the summer gave way to fall and winter loomed, Falkenhayn wiped his hands and called an end to the campaign. While the embers still whirled about the air, the terrible toll it extracted soon emerged. 2 million Russians lay dead in the fields of Galicia, Poland, and the Kurland. 800,000 were now prisoners of the enemy. From May the 4th to the 31st of August, Tsarist forces had abandoned 500 kilometers of territory, reaching from Warsaw to the banks of the Pripyat Marshes. As the army retreated, so too did thousands of civilians, refugees in their own country. Their villages burned and homes destroyed, their remaining belongings packed onto a cart or carried on their back all had seen and been through the circles of hell. Forests stripped as if a hurricane had swept through, trees staggering from their shattered trunks, and limbs hanging everywhere showed where shrapnel shells had been bursting, recounted one survivor from Warsaw. For all intents and purposes, Russia's great war should have ended that summer. Her army had been gutted and her population uprooted by the onslaught. Faith in the administration had been shattered and people wondered what would come next. Alfred Knox... Head of the British military attache recalls the mood in Stavka following the retreat. Interviewing a senior Russian officer, Knox recalls the chilling assessment Quote, We are giving everything. Do you think it is easy for us to look on these long columns of fugitives flying before the German advance? We know that all the children crowded on those carts will die before the winter is out. Tsar Nicholas II, the last of the Romanovs, had arrived in Petrograd to do something he wanted to do for two years. The war had not been kind to Russia. Horrific casualty lists and growing unrest at home had brought him to the edge of a nervous breakdown. Nicholas was famous for loving three things, his family, his religion, and his country, in that order. After spending the day in silent prayer and religious contemplation, the Tsar summoned a meeting of his ministers at the Alexander Palace. Accompanying him, although not attending the meeting, was his wife, the Empress Alexandra, and her close friend, Anna Verabova. As the Tsar attended business, the two women waited outside in the lobby. They were told it would take just a couple of minutes. But those few minutes soon became an hour, and Alexandra grew impatient. As she peeked her head inside, the Empress was greeted with a curious sight. The Tsar sat upright in his chair, and his flanking ministers wore expressions of disbelief and horror. One, at the far end of the table, was on his feet, hands gripped in desperate plea. The Empress could see there were tears in the man's eyes. But most concerning for Alexandra was the Tsar's expression. Although he appeared stern and in control, the Empress knew her husband well. A longer look soon revealed the truth. His nails clawed into the wooden armrest, his face flushed and covered in perspiration. Alexandra could not make out what was being said, but she knew why the meeting was taking place. For weeks, she had pleaded Nicholas to call it and announce his fateful decision. It was God's will, the mad monk Rasputin had told her. Convinced of her confidant's divinity, it took little prodding for her husband to agree. Things could only improve after all. When the meeting adjourned and the ministers filed out, there was no turning back. Two days later, the following passage appeared in newspapers across Russia, and I quote, Now that the enemy has penetrated far into the empire, my duty to the country which God has committed to my keeping ordains that I shall assume supreme command of the fighting forces share the burdens and toils of war with my army and help it protect russian soil against the onslaught of the foe." End quote. when tsar nicholas ii took personal command of russia's military on september the 5th 1915 he could not have known it would spark a chain of events that would drag his beloved country into chaos his decision to take command was a personal one on the surface he hoped it would reinvigorate the army's spirit the great mass of conscripted peasants whom he knew next to nothing about But beneath the populist image Nicholas hoped to craft for himself was a man dogged by insecurities. So far, his 20-year reign had been dominated by public unrest, economic crises, and embarrassing foreign debacles. Nicholas hoped that as supreme commander, he could unite Russia and lead his country on a holy crusade, like the warrior Tsars of the past. Tsar Nicholas had a childish understanding of the world. He was told what he wanted to hear and had a hard time taking critical advice. At the Petrograd meeting, his ministers were rightly concerned that tying the crown directly to the war effort was a very bad idea. People would blame him when things went south, in fear the supposed enemies of Tsarism, namely the parliamentarians of the Duma, would use it to chip away the imperial power base. Now as we've discussed in previous episodes, Nicholas was not a bad man at heart. Naive? Most definitely. Indifferent? Absolutely. But a deranged, tyrannical monster he was not. Born into the lap of luxury, Nicholas was the offspring of a lifetime spent in the aristocratic bubble. Every day he attended meetings with dignitaries, military officials, and diplomats, where things followed a structured order, customary greetings, followed by big lunches and lavish dinner balls. These imperial functions were a buffer against the outside world. They created a cocoon of cozy domesticity, which protected him from what was happening on the streets of Petrograd and Moscow. He was accustomed to hearing that things were well that the people loved him, and that political reform was unnecessary. He was the Tsar, chosen by God to lead Russia through these dark times. All he had to do was give the order, and things would right themselves. Above his state obligations, Nicholas was more concerned about what others thought of him. He loved etiquette, and those who met him frequently noted how polite and well-mannered he was. He put a lot of faith in his ministers, and usually heeded their advice unless evidence convinced him otherwise. The autocratic system meant he held absolute authority, but he could never comprehend that his decisions could have consequences beyond his control. In his mind, his decisions were always the right ones, and his orthodox faith gave him the proof he needed. Russian society was deeply religious, and the czars were always seen as quasi-divine figureheads. The fundamental laws of 1716 governed that all men must bow to his supreme power, not only out of fear, but also conscience. Nicholas was the latest czar to cling to these aging ideals, but the pressures of 20th century modernism meant Russia was being pulled in competing directions. The institution of czarism, with all its connotations, was too great for the conservative Nicholas. As Margaret Macmillan writes, Nicholas was better fitted to be a country squire or the mayor of a small town. He would often agree with each of his ministers in spite of the fact they reported the opposite of one another. Even if a decision was made, there was always a chance he would change his mind within a few hours, so there was no real urgency to get things done. Ruling a sickly empire of 170 million inhabitants was a burden Nicholas would never be strong enough to carry. To cope with the pressures of government, the Tsar would often take to the country with his family, and leave the issues of government to his loyal ministers. While he can be criticized for being inept, foolish, and passive, you can never question Nicholas's love for his family, his marriage to the Empress Alexandra was a happy one, born from affectionate love and compatibility. Unlike so many statesmen of the time, the Tsar never took a mistress and was a devout father and husband his entire life. One can argue that it was during these retreats when Nicholas was truly happy. This comes across in the declassified photo albums which have recently been made public. They gave us a fascinating insight into the otherwise private family. I'll be posting a link to the Great War so you can go and have a look. But beneath the tennis courts, personal yachts, and pet elephants were realities the Romanovs could never escape. The Tsar loved his wife, but many others harbored suspicion for the Empress. For one, Alexandra was German-born, and a devout Protestant. She had initially rejected Nicholas on these grounds, until her first cousin, Kaiser Wilhelm, convinced her the marriage was worth the conversion. Nevertheless, there were always whispers about Alexandra's loyalty. As a German-born Protestant, recently converted to Russian Orthodoxy, Alexandra was in constant competition, both with herself and others. Embedding herself in Russian society did not come easy. Because she struggled with the language, Alexandra was outwardly shy, she rarely smiled, and spoke little outside of formal greetings. To many, she came across as cold and impolite, a stark contrast to the approachable Nicholas. A mutual dislike for the other soon emerged. The ladies and gentlemen of the court accused the empress of being a pompous shrew, while Alexandra dismissed them as parasitic leeches, quick to take but slow to give. Spurred by her new country folk, Alexandra turned to her family and the church for consolation. But this too was used against her. Many felt her embrace of orthodoxy was excessive, in a poor attempt to prove her Russianness. She was also accused of sealing off the imperial palace and refusing to let the Tsar go about his business. For much of her 23 years as empress, the jaded nobility in her formed a cycle of rebuff and cynicism. There were many days when her husband and four daughters were her only friends. For much of their marriage, Nicholas and Alexandra's primary concern was the health of their family. Alexandra was a carrier of hemophilia, and this was passed to the couple's only son, the Prince Alexis. The young boy suffered from horrific internal hemorrhages. Many nights the household would be awakened by Alexis crying in pain. The exhausted parents could only stand by helplessly and pray that it would pass. The boy's ailment was a devastating blow. So far, their marriage had produced four children, all of them daughters, none of whom could inherit the throne. Now a male heir was produced, and many were convinced Alexis would not survive childhood. Snickers about Alexander's fertility naturally followed, which drove the Empress deeper into recluse. The pair exhausted themselves keeping Alexis's blight a secret but the close-knit nobility naturally caught wind. Whispers echoed in the halls, and an unspoken truth lingered in the air. Alexandra could no longer face the glares, the gossip which surrounded court life. She sought refuge in her family, and more importantly, turned to the church for spiritual guidance. If the doctors could do nothing, then perhaps the divine could provide answers. The date of November 1st, 1905 marks an important day in Russian history. Not only had she just been mauled in her war with the Japanese, but it was on that day when a new healer was due to arrive at the imperial palace. His credentials were impeccable. The royals of Montenegro and high church fathers vouched for his abilities. Unlike those who came before, he had the trappings of a rural peasant. The man was Grigory Rasputin. Grigory Ifamovich was born in West Siberia in 1872, and like 98% of Russia's population, began life as a peasant farmer. Growing up in the frozen, wind-swept plains of the Asiatic tundra made life in a small village difficult. Peasants of this area were of tough stock, accustomed to the climate and isolation that was so familiar to them. Situated 250 miles east of the Ural Mountains, there was little industry in Grigory's village. It was a place where things had remained unchanged for generations. To pass the time, the locals told stories. Listening to the frozen winds howl through the night had a toll on the mind and a strong connection to the supernatural grew among the community. Mysticism and other branches of religious sects were quite common. It is still difficult to distinguish between man and myth when it comes to Rasputin. We know he first gained the nickname Rasputin, meaning the desolate, in his native village sometime after the age of 12. Reportedly, his first encounter with the supernatural came when he was a small boy. A group of peasants had gathered in his father's house to discuss a recent horse theft. The young Rasputin entered the room, pointed to one of the peasants, and declared that he was the thief. The peasant denied the accusation, and Rasputin's father, enraged by his son's behavior, proceeded to beat the boy until exhaustion. However, the locals were deeply superstitious, and afterwards, a group of interested individuals followed the suspect home, and sure enough, saw the man leading the stolen horse into the woods. From that moment on, or as legend has it, Rasputin slowly gained a reputation as a seer. As he grew up, Rasputin developed a taste for the weird and obscure. In his late teens, he reportedly fell in with a cult known as the Callist, which is spelled K-H-L-Y-S-T. The Callist had a perverted way of looking at the world. They believed the best way to reach providence was by plummeting into the depths of sin and debauchery. To exercise their doctrine, the Calist were infamous for holding late-night orgies, which consisted of dozens, if not hundreds of individuals. The nocturnal liaisons consisted of men and women regardless of age or familial relationships, which earned them the reputation as the most hated and despised aesthetic cults in Russia. While Rasputin's connection to the Calist remains debatable, he was undoubtedly influenced by their ideas. He believed that repentance can only occur after a person had sinned. To Rasputin, Living the clean, virtuous life did not make you pleasing to God. One needed to debase themselves completely and be reborn through atonement. Although asceticism was nothing new in Russia, Rasputin felt it was his responsibility to bring it to the masses. If you were not going to sin, then Rasputin would sin for you. And his chosen method to expound this belief were women's bodies. The young, the old, the married, widowed, and single. Rasputin grabbed and fondled nearly every woman he came across, irregardless of place or circumstance. This was one of Rasputin's most repugnant characteristics. In his biography of the monk, Renee Philip Miller recounts the story of a young girl who met with Rasputin, hoping to find spiritual fulfillment. He sat down opposite her, edged quite near, and his light blue eyes changed color and became deep and dark. A leaden heaviness overpowered her limbs, as his great wrinkled face distorted with desire, came closer to hers. She felt his hot breath on her cheeks, and saw how his eyes, burning from the depths of their sockets, furtively roved over her helpless body. His voice had fallen to a passionate whisper, and he murmured strange, voluptuous words in her ear. Quote. Rasputin satisfied both his sexual appetite and twisted dogma in this manner. Somehow it worked, and he soon had a cadre of female admirers who followed him everywhere he went. While his seduction worked on some, many others were able to pull free. Rasputin received his share of blows. He was kicked, scratched, and bitten throughout his life, but this only served to prove his deranged agenda, and he wore the scars with pride. While he made more enemies than he could count, he had a firm support base of loyal followers. His supposed mystic abilities, entrenched in a deeply superstitious society, worked to his advantage. Even those who felt he was nothing more than an opportunistic charlatan feared crossing his path. If indeed he was divine, then no one wanted to anger his quote, unquote, friends. But in spite of his busy schedule of sexual debauchery, Rasputin still found time to marry, and his marriage produced two sons and two daughters. His daughters would move with him to St. Petersburg, while his two sons were marred with tragedy. One died in infancy, and the other was mentally challenged. His wife, a blonde-haired peasant girl, remained behind in his native village. Rasputin's first appearance in St. Petersburg came in nineteen o five, and it was his time in the imperial capital when the mad monk we all know and love comes into form. Physically, he was a repulsive human being. His hair was slick with grease, and his long, untamed beard was full of debris and leftovers from his previous meal. He never bathed. His nails were black with soot, and he probably smelt like a trash compactor on a hot summer's day. His wardrobe was typical peasant: a loose-fitting cloak with baggy trousers tucked into a pair of old-weathered boots. None of it inspired confidence, but it was part of the image Rasputin had designed for himself. He was something so alien, so foreign to what was expected. Most holy men were well kept and clean, but Rasputin had the look, and smell, associated with the Russian peasantry. To those who encountered him, his physical appearance was proof of his divinity. Surely, this strange man was here for a reason. Above all else, Rasputin had the personality to match. He was a confident speaker, and his ability to command a room is near-legendary. His most striking feature were his eyes. The eyes of a viper, his future assassin would recall. A glance from these steely peepers was enough to silence the most ardent disbeliever. Those on the receiving end of his trademark gaze recount how they felt like they had been put under hypnosis, tongue-tied and unable to speak. Certainly, Rasputin was one creepy dude. Rasputin's first encounter with the Romanovs came via Montenegro. The sister princesses of the small Balkan country were married to cousins of Tsar Nicholas, and shared a common interest in the occult. They spoke highly of his abilities as a soothsayer and healer, and recommended his services to the Empress Alexandra. When he arrived at the Imperial Palace, Rasputin was just another holy man. Many had come before him, and there was little reason to expect anything else. Alexandra had grown tired of the noble doctors and pampered priests whose efforts had proven futile time and time again. The appearance of Rasputin marked the antithesis of everything Alexandra grew to hate, and the monk's first visit with the prince Alexis secured his place in history. Now what actually happened in the prince's room that night will never be known. Contemporary records state that Alexis was in the midst of a severe hemorrhage, when the ghost-like Rasputin, draped in peasant's robes, placed his hands on the boy's chest and stopped the bleeding through some kind of hypnosis. Now, modern assessments dismiss this story by and large, but in the context of those who witnessed it, the evidence was right before their eyes. Rasputin had cured the prince, and by extension, saved the Romanov dynasty. Whatever Rasputin did that night will remain debatable, and I am not about to go into the plethora of theories which have been put forth. However, there is one important thing to take away from it Rasputin's influence on the prince endeared him to the empress, and it was Alexandra's judgment which trumped all else. To her, this strange mystic had succeeded where dozens of others had failed, and this was concrete proof of his holiness. The Romanov family would forever be indebted to the mad monk, and Alexandra would ensure he was never far from reach. We'll talk more about Rasputin and his relationship with the imperial family in future episodes, but this all leads back to the Petrograd meeting of September 1915. One night, Alexandra claimed she was visited by one of the archangels, who told her that Russia would be destroyed unless her husband took command of the army. Alarmed by her vision, she raced to Rasputin, who confirmed that he had seen the same vision. With her advisor's endorsement, she wrote her husband, pleading him to take the necessary step. Nicholas, who was always a bit fatalistic, agreed a short time later. The string of defeats that summer gave credence, and the Tsar's bereaved ministers saw the change as Rasputin's puppeteering the army's hatred for the monk was beyond limits. In one instance, Rasputin sought permission to visit the front and bless the troops. The senior officer in charge responded that Rasputin was welcome to come, but only if the officer could hang him upon arrival. But outside of threatening him, there was little the army could do. Firmly entrenched with the Tsar and Empress, the mad monk was there to stay. Reaction to the Tsar's declaration was overwhelmingly negative. Moderates in the Duma, felt it was a trump card which would be used to stamp out their plans for reform, while the army was equally aghast. Nicholas had never been a military man. He enjoyed the romantic allure, but had no connotation to its rigors. Within the peasant ranks, the decision was met with typical soldier humor. Alfred Knox, the British army observer, recorded the men jiding that if the emperor was going to fight, then the empress would surely come too, and hopefully followed by all the women in Russia. Some even dug additional foxholes and posted signs which read, Reserved for His Holiness Tsar Nicholas. Perhaps the only group impressed by the decision were Russia's allies. It came as welcome news to the French and British. Their fears that Russia might be ousted were removed. There was now a personal guarantee that she would remain belligerent, although in what capacity was the big outlier? Although he had ultimate authority, Nicholas would leave the daily duties to his chosen chief of staff, Mikhail Alexeyev, Who would be responsible for designing strategy and day-to-day operations. One of the great paradoxes of the First World War is that while the Tsar's decision would prove disastrous for Russia, it was that crucial period from September 1915 to the summer of 1916 which saw one of the most impressive turnabouts in her history. There was an old adage which says that Russia is never as weak as she appears, and throughout the first half of 1916, the Tsar's empire was in the midst of a major overhaul that would have impressed even the most dedicated pessimist. As we discussed back in episode 34, the Great Retreat brought the inadequacies of Russia's administration to the forefront, and throughout the winter of 1915-16, there was a serious effort to get her finances under control. Industry was amalgamated into larger factories, which allowed for the closer monitoring of capital. Foreign investment, namely through British and American firms, were soon producing war materials to supplement Russia's own shell boom. The new, but unfortunately short-serving, Minister of War, Alexei Pulivanov, brought another 2 million men into uniform and overhauled training regimes. Men of merit were elevated, and issues of production and distribution were left to the professionals. By early 1916, 1.3 million rifles were produced, along with 1,900 field guns and 5 million shells of various calibre. Reaching this plateau was not easy. Investors needed convincing, and contracts had to be fulfilled. But Russian diplomats could always leverage their strategic importance. Her allies were perfectly willing to lend money. They would have to, lest risk a collapse. But getting supplies to where they needed to be required navigating Russia's woefully underutilized rail network. The collapse of the Dardanelles operation meant the allies had just three. Yes, three ports to supply their ally. The two westward ports, Archangel and Murmansk were icebound 5 months a year, and required going up and over Norway, dodging German mines and patrols in the process. The other option was Vladivostok, which was way over on the far east coast neighboring China. Vladivostok could be used all year round, and it was the only port with a direct link to the Trans-Siberian Railway. Having a port on the Asiatic Sea had some benefits. Not only was it out of reach of German U-boats, but Russia's old enemy, Japan, were able to provide a slow but steady stream of munitions heading inland. The Japanese supplied tens of thousands of rifles and various field guns via this network. But once off boats and onto the rails, there was only a 9173 kilometer ride to the front. If sections of the railway were closed, it could take weeks for supplies to arrive. For example, of the 21,000 motor cars purchased two years earlier, less than 700 had been delivered by 1916. Attempts to alleviate the backlog were honest. The problem was that Russia had little railway infrastructure to begin with, and all their locomotives ran on a broader gauge than the rest of Europe. Engines being built in western factories had to accommodate this difference. At the same time, thousands of kilometers of new tracks had to be laid before fluidity was achieved. It was a colossal task, which would be nowhere near completion before things came to a boil. Her allies could only do so much. British, French, and American delegates were sent to assist, but Russia's bureaucratic labyrinth was excruciatingly slow. For example, you could never meet with the war ministry directly. You needed to find an intermediary who could put you into contact with a representative, who, in turn, would make a few phone calls and then set up the meeting for you. This inert system worked no longer, and was the source of embarrassment for many reformers. For any of this to work, changes would have to occur inside Russia. As the Zhukominovs were shown the door and professionals took up the mantle, changes were certainly on the way. For our purposes, the most affected group was the army's officer corps. Russia's military apparatus was notoriously sloppy. The vaunted steamroller, which haunted the minds of European leaders for much of the pre-war decades, was never a viable threat. In reality, she never had the capacity or finances to absorb the manpower, It was estimated that 600,000 men would have to be conscripted annually to fulfill the steamroller quota of 6 million. Except, it was impossible to take in that many. There were not enough barracks, staff, or money to train them. There was a famous joke which went that the Russian army consisted of men who failed to avoid military service, and there was actually quite a bit of truth behind that. More often than not, men were exempted from service because there was nowhere to house them. All of this led to a deadly hubris. Military leaders were well aware of Russia's potential, and were quite smug in thinking Europe was afraid of it. What this did was create a sense of complacency. Officers pushed the issues to the back of the closet, and hoped that when the time came, patriotism would take over and things would run smoothly. Vladimir Sukomlinov was one of the few who tried to address these issues prior to 1914. We talked about him back in episode 34. But as casualties mounted, the protective layer of inertia was chipped away. Officers who were chosen on social standing were quickly exposed as empty uniforms. The British military observer Alfred Knox recounts that regimental officers were prone to laziness and self pity. Knox writes, They were inclined to neglect their duties unless constantly supervised. They had no taste for outdoor amusements, and they were too prone to spend a holiday in eating rather more and in sleeping much more. The first two years of war did much to change this picture. The ineffective officers were slaughtered in heaps alongside their helpless troops. Casualties among the officer corps were 150%. 600,000 had been killed from a pre war class of 40,000. This created a massive vacuum, and the changeovers at the top post Great Retreat brought another cycle of leaders into the fold. And one in particular stands out above the rest. Alexei Alexeyevich Brusilov was without a doubt Russia's most famous soldier of the First World War. Born on August the 19th, 1853 in Tulipsi, Georgia, Brusilov was the embodiment of the new budding Russian army. Preeminent historian Norman Stone famously described him as a man whose common sense amounted to brilliance, and his approach to operations made him a freak amongst Stavka staff. Brusilov was a bloodline aristocrat and trained cavalryman, but unlike his contemporaries, his rise to prominence can be credited to a combination of hard work and never falling foul of military or imperial circles. Having joined the imperial ranks as a 14-year-old, Brusilov's career took him on a whirlwind tour throughout Europe. He got his first taste of combat during Russia's war with Ottoman Turkey in the late 1870s. Decorated for gallantry, Brusilov wrote his combat record to a posting at Russia's premier military institute. As an instructor, Brusilov was eager to learn from others and was a frequent visitor to war games in France, Germany, and Austria-Hungary. What distanced Brusilov from the rabble was his interest in the scholarly aspects of war. He wrote numerous publications on tactics and understood that warfare was never static. It changed from generation to generation and knew Russia was so far behind the pack they thought they were in first place. Tsar's tradition had been lazy and blamed military shortcomings on cowardice, troop laziness, or a combination of both. Brusilov was very much in the minority when he said, the old way was crap and we need to do something different. Brusilov is credited for striking the right amount of fear in his subordinates, and he drove his officers as hard as he drove himself. No detail was too small, and no oversight was tolerated. Although he was an aristocrat through and through, Brusilov won loyalty and respect by doing something totally bizarre. Not only did he make frequent visits to the front, giving his troops a face to put with the name, but he also ensured his men had what they needed. If they needed boots, he got boots. If they needed shovels, he got shovels. If they needed food, he got food. But he was never a populist leader. He did not make grand speeches or hand out extra rations, but he was realistic in what was achievable on the battlefield. Past mistakes were taken as opportunities to learn and grow, not hide beneath the subterfuge. The performance of his soldiers speak volumes of his leadership. In 1914, while commanding the 8th Army in Galicia, Brusilov laid siege to the fortress of Przemyśl and captured the Carpathian foothills, putting him in a position to pass the mountains and threaten Budapest. Having drove further west than any other army, he was forced to withdraw after fighting in the Polish salient threatened to isolate him in the pocket. His handling of the 8th Army saw him up for promotion. When Falkenheim unleashed the Golitsy-Tarnov offensive that spring. Brusilov helped plug the gap which delayed Mackensen's advance for several days, giving the Polish and Galician armies enough time to withdraw. The Great Retreat, although paralyzing for morale, punched Brusilov's ticket to higher command. As the wheel rotated once again, Brusilov was appointed commander of the Southwest Army Group, which held a 450 kilometer front ranging from the Pripyat marshes to the Romanian border. Having witnessed the massacre at Lake Narach, Brusilov saw the death rows of the old army. Despite an overwhelming advantage in guns and manpower, the attack was squandered by uninspired leadership and preparation. Artillery was inaccurate, and the men were sent into battle without clear objectives. Flanking attempts were launched too late, or not at all, which allowed the Germans to scythe down the exposed attackers. Lake Narach had been a horrific debacle. 350,000 men were sent against 75,000 defenders, and in the end, casualties were nearly 4 to 1. 100,000 Russians were killed in exchange for 20,000 Germans. Despite being vastly outnumbered, the Germans were able to contain the assaults without diverting troops from Verdun, in essence deflecting the blow with one arm behind their back. While Lake Narach was about as wasteful as you can imagine, historians are quick to point out that it had consequences which outstrip its actual significance. For one, it convinced Stavka that there was no way they could compete with the Germans, which condemned much of the northern armies to passivity. For their part, the Germans were cavalier about this. Falkenhayn compared the Russian efforts to bloody sacrifices rather than attacks, and believed the Russians would eventually defeat themselves if such misadventures continued. However, Russia had the rare advantage of choosing their opponent. Brusilov appreciated that if they were outclassed by the Germans, then they might have better luck against the Austrians. Russia's performance against the Habsburgs was much improved. They had crushed Conrad's invasion of 1914 and sent his armies into disarray. The prolonged siege of Presmusel and capture of the Galician capital Lemberg were huge blows to Habsburg morale. Reports of mass desertions and a Russian army poised on the Hungarian frontier presented a crisis which was only solved through German intervention. Brusilov, of course, knew the Austrians well. During the Great Retreat, His 8th army had captured 70,000 Austrian prisoners near the town of Lutsk, which forced Mackensen to divert additional divisions to the south. Even before the war, Brusilov had spent 8 years serving in Galicia, and had detailed knowledge of its terrain and climate. In 1911 and 1912, he personally commanded a pair of war games simulating an Austrian invasion. It would not be a stretch to say that no Russian officer knew their opponent better than Brusilov. So on April the 14th, 1916, Tsar Nicholas called a meeting of Stavka to go over what they intended to do now that spring was upon them. Most pressing on the agenda was how Russia would aid her allies. The Italians were concerned about increased Austrian activity in Trentino. While at Verdun, well, yeah. The April 14th meeting represented one of the few times Russia's brain trust were calibrating as a group. From the northern front came General Alexei Kuropatkin, a name you may recall from the Russo-Japanese War. Kirapatkin was the embodiment of Tsar's lethargism. He hated the outdoors, and at 68 years of age was little more than a dusty windbag. Unimaginative and in ill health, Kirapatkin was not alone in his complacency. To his left sat General Alexei Evert, commander of the Northwestern Front. Another simpleton whose most notable achievement was organizing the battle at Lake Narach. Everett was full of pugnacity which never translated into concrete expression. When things went right, he was happy to take the credit, but when things face-planted, he would throw anything and anyone under the bus. In his opinion, the Russian soldier was beyond saving. They were too stupid to follow orders, and Everett felt his command duties were beneath his stature. Although Tsar Nicholas resided over the meeting, he let his chief of staff, Mikhail Alexeyev, do most of the talking. Mikhail Alexeyev was a loyal but unpopular soldier. During the Great Retreat, Alexeyev had been in charge of the Southwest Army group, and had escaped with his reputation intact. Like Brusilov, the meltdown was his key to higher command. His loyalty won him favor of the Tsar, who in turn made him his right hand man. Alexeyev may not have been a great tactician, but he was certainly a step up from the otherwise shallow talent pool. He had admirable traits given the circumstances. His appetite for hard work was insatiable, and his boundless energy helped navigate Russia out of the glooms of 1915. He refused to live at army expense it paid his living costs from his own salary. The problem with Alexeyev was his unflinching loyalty. To quote Norman Stone again, Alexeyev was a charmless effigy. His subordinates frequently complained he failed to distribute tasks accordingly and overworked himself beyond capacity. Decision-making was another huge problem. Alexeyev would take hours to arrive at one, often retreating into silent prayer before giving a verdict. Historians generally agree that Alexeyev would have been a capable administrator in peacetime, but was largely unsuited for the speed and stress of wartime administration. Still, Tsar Nicholas was happy with the appointment, and credit should be given. Alexeyev was able to grease the wheel, and get the army on a more even footing. The April 14th meeting was called because Alexeyev had a plan. Russia would retake the offensive. To assist their allies, Alexeyev sought to attack on a 20-kilometer front along the Davina River and drive west towards the Lithuanian capital of Vilnius, which marked the demarcation point between the North and Northwest Army groups. The goal of the operation was to allow Kirapatkin and Evert to combine their forces and overwhelm the German positions. Intelligence reports estimated that between them, they outnumbered the Germans six to one in this area. But the two generals were not so inclined. They fell back on the exhausted issue of shell shortage and a lack of manpower, arguing they would not be ready for the proposed start date of June the 1st. An argument over army preparedness erupted. Alexeyev, confident in his plan, and Evert Kirapatkin, terrified by the prospect of actual work, butted heads which went on for some time. The Tsar sat in silence, totally unprepared to overrule his bickering subordinates. Then Alexey floated an alternative plan. Brusilov was the rookie in the room. He had been in command of the Southwest Group for just over a month, and was very much the fresh face, despite being just five years younger than Kuropatkin. On his own initiative, Brusilov offered to attack in Galicia, in hopes of drawing off enemy reserves and allowing the armies of the North to complete their proposed task. I ask only the express permission to attack on my front at the same time as my colleagues, he told them. Brusilov's words stunned the meeting into silence. His plan was shocking for two reasons. One, there were serious doubts over the army's preparedness. Munitions were arriving in greater numbers, but Russia's inadequate transportation network was slow in delivery. 87% of the goods arriving at the docks had nowhere to go. Artillery pieces, shells, motor trucks, locomotives, steamrollers and lumber sat idle in the congested ports. Secondly, the fact that Brusilov actually volunteered to take the offensive was just insane. Russian leaders had to be kicked, prodded, and then swooned before they found the motivation. Brusilov had not been called on, nor was his front ever seen to be of vital importance. The impetus being that he opposed Austrian and not German troops, created an aura that the southwestern front would not be decisive. The interesting thing is that when Brusilov offered his plan, Everett and Kuropatkin were visibly relieved. With Brusilov's suggestion, the burden had passed south. They gave him the, it's your funeral look and carried on. Alexeyev was a bit more cautious, and only agreed on the caveat that Brusilov could expect no reinforcements. To their horror, however, Everett and Kirapakin discovered they were still on the hook. The northern attack would take precedent, and Alexeyev made sure to remind the two generals that Brusilov's operation would be an independent venture they were not to use it as an excuse to delay their own preparation. Two days after the April 14th Council, Brusilov took his plans and presented them to his army commanders. The southwest army group consisted of four armies. Arrayed from north to south, the armies ran as follows. 8th Army, under General Kaladin, the 11th Army, under General Sakharov, the 7th, commanded by General serbatchev and to the south, the 9th Army under General Lichetsky. Each army consisted of 160,000 men apiece, divided among 39.5 infantry divisions plus 12 cavalry. Protecting a 450 kilometer line, stretching from the Pripyat marshes to the town of Charnowitz on the Romanian frontier, the southwest sector had fallen quiet in the period following the Great Retreat. Brusilov had spent months rebuilding the confidence of his troops. Training was more vigorous and small localized offensives along the Dniester were designed to test the strength of enemy fortifications. Brusilov never let his troops sit for long, and he always had them doing something, which kept them occupied and gave them a sense of purpose. In Russia's peasant army this was crucial, and morale in the southwestern front was notably higher because of it. His men could not grumble of boredom, and Brusilov's unceasing demands meant there was always work to be done. Upon learning that a large number of his staff could not read a map, Brusilov ordered mandatory literacy classes for all officers, and this program soon extended down within the ranks. Artillery regiments were given courses on geography and mathematics. Physical fitness was also placed at a premium. In short, Brusilov was molding an army from scratch, and early results were promising. Brusilov's army officers, however, were mortified by the attack plan. The four army generals, Kaladin, Sakharov, Shcherbatchasev, and Chetsky, were concerned about the optics. Russia's secret weapon had always been her manpower, and the generals were worried the numbers were not in their favour. Between them, the Southwest Army group consisted of 620,000 men, opposed by roughly 500,000 Habsburg troops. Given the difference of 120,000 men, most armies would be happy with that advantage. But not so with the Russian, and this really contextualizes the type of mindset the Russians were in for much of 1916. They had outnumbered their opponents in every battle so far, and each time were met with disaster. During the East Prussian invasion of 1914, the Russians outnumbered the Germans 2-1 to one and were eviscerated. These setbacks in Poland and the carnage at Lake Naroch were cruel reminders that they were outclassed in every regard. More damning to Brusilov's optimism was an ill-fated attack by Lichetsky's 9th army that December. Lichetsky had attacked Austrian positions in Bukovina, losing 70,000 men nearly double the number sustained by the Austrians. The fact that these were Austrian and not German troops served to solidify the inferiority complex of the Russian staff. In short, there would never be enough men, guns, or shell to mount an effective operation. The army commander stalled for more time and doubted Brusilov's scheme. In embryo, Brusilov's plan can be traced back to the Shantii summit of December 1915. Representing the Russians was a man by the name of Yakov Zelensky, a marionette whose war had already come to an end. Zelensky had been in charge of the Northwest Front in 1914 and ordered the disastrous invasion of East Prussia. After that calamity, Zelensky did what any good Tsar's officer would do and blamed everyone but himself for the failure, to the point when even the Tsar couldn't listen anymore and relieved him of command. Useless as an army officer, Zelensky still had value in politics. He was a familiar face to the French and British, and his presence was a reassuring sign that Russia remained in the game. Zelensky brought up a plan, which, like Brusilov's, was met with silence. On orders from Alexeyev, he proposed that Russia could concentrate her power in the Balkans, aimed at knocking out Austria-Hungary with a single blow. Technically speaking, Zelensky's offer was strategically sound, and probably could have produced great results. But to show how frayed inter-allied relations had become by the end of 1915, Joff took the Russian offer as a threat to his authority. Joff had organized the meeting himself, and had no intention to let the dinosaur Zelensky steal his thunder. Since the Balkan campaign would not lead to France's liberation, the Russian proposal was thrown in the shredder. Joff and the British representative, Sir Archibald Murray, felt Zelensky was overinflated with optimism, and the two shared serious doubts over Russia's preparedness. Stripped down to its bare essentials, Brusilov's plan was remarkably simple. As mentioned earlier, it was designed solely as a diversion to the main thrust coming later in the north. This was approved at the April 14th Council, and Brusilov operated with the expectation that the northern attack would be forthcoming. And yes, you can consider that foreshadowing. Using the full might of the southwest army group, Brusilov planned his attack to encompass the entire front. From north to south, the 8th, 11th, 7th, and 9th armies would launch simultaneous offensives, stretching 350 kilometers of the front. This was a huge undertaking, and operations of this size haven't been seen since 1914. Western front offensives tended to be focused on small areas. Verdun was just 16 square kilometers, and the upcoming Somme offensive would be less than 40. Brusilov was attempting something much different. Attacking on a narrow front made no sense to him. In his opinion, Russia should take advantage of her numerical superiority and attack across as much territory as possible. Funneling troops into small windows only played to the enemy's advantage. He had observed the allied setbacks and took note of a few things. For one, attacking a broad front would remove the flanks, and give his forces the chance to break through at several points. It would also eliminate the chance of a salient being formed, which could snag his formations under deadly, enfilading fire. He also paid close attention to gunnery, and was particularly interested in the involving role of artillery. Preliminary bombardments, as seen in France, were too indiscriminate. Simply carpeting the enemy positions and hoping the way would be clear had proven disastrous time and time again. Instead, Brusilov turned to a type of barrage designed to paralyze the defenders, giving his armies enough time to occupy their positions before reserves could be called forth. This type of barrage, called bite and hold, would become a staple of the Western armies in 1917-18. Bite and hold was an English technique, developed in late 1915 from the staff of Sir Henry Rawlinson, commander of the 4th Army of the BEF, a very important figure in the upcoming Battle of the Somme. Bite and hold called for short advances, supplemented by heavy bombardments at predetermined intervals. It was a cleaner and more manageable way of attacking. For one, it preserved the integrity of the ground. Attacking troops would be able to cross no man's land without dipping and diving through shell craters. The speed of advance would thus be quicker and would allow officers to exercise a greater degree of control over the battle. More importantly, short bombardments across a wide front would not betray the location of attack. The problem encountered on the western front was that prolonged bombardments on a specific area told the Germans exactly where they intended to strike. All the Germans had to do was wait for the barrage to lift And then unleashed the reserves into forward trenches. Brusilov was careful not to repeat these same mistakes. Using geography to his advantage, he knew the enemy would have to guess the location of the main thrust. But if that thrust came at multiple points, it would be impossible to contain. The line would crack, forcing the Austrians to withdraw west. Now this may all seem pretty optimistic, and Brusilov would probably agree if he thought he was asking a lot expecting the russian army to follow through on these tactics would have been impossible in the first two years and indeed many outwardly criticized brusilov as delusional with the exception of nikolai sakharov in charge of 7th army brusilov's staff had little faith in these new tactics the general was forced to extend an olive branch each commander was free to choose their own point of breakthrough based on their own assessments while it was up to them to survey and judge the most advantageous spots Brusilov buzzed around the various HQs. He consulted with his own technical experts and oversaw preparations personally. His frequent visits to the front created a system of credibility among his officers. Sapper trenches were dug, and he made effective use of aerial reconnaissance. His army commanders had photographs of Austrian gun placements weeks before the assault. One of the truly unique things Brusilov did was implement the use of scale models in his planning. Based on aerial photographs, the Russians constructed mock positions and practiced taking them time and time again. The simple addition would have a huge payoff. Men in the first wave would have a familiarity with their surroundings, and each soldier would understand their individual role. All this training and prep work amounted to one brilliant idea. Brusilov planned to use the enemy's hubris against him, and use an overabundance of information to confuse and disorient. In short, Brusilov made no attempt to keep the build up in Galicia a secret. He knew it would be a wasted effort to even try, and so left things open for all eyes to see. But as mentioned earlier, he knew his opponent well, and the Austrians were more than happy to fall for the ruse. For their part, the central powers were far too complacent in their attitudes of Russian strength. They, like the Russians did, based their belief in the numbers. For Falkenhayn and Conrad, the Southwest Army Group did not enjoy a comfortable advantage, and so would an attack. On the 23rd of May, 1916, the two leaders dismissed the buildup in Galicia as a ruse. There was no way it was possible. Even if by some off chance the Russians were preparing for something big, intelligence would have tipped them off four to six weeks in advance. Russian military channels leaked like a sieve, and German intelligence had picked up dozens of messages regarding the buildup except the plans they intercepted were fake, purposely fed into the system by Brusilov's agents. With a mountain of evidence before them, neither Conrad nor Falkenhayn could see the forest through the trees. After the French army failed to retake Fort Douaumont on May 16th, Falkenhayn was preoccupied with Verdun. The 5th Army was about to retake the offensive and press towards Fort Vaux at the end of the month, part of Operation May which would be the largest German offensive at Verdun since the opening attack in February. On the other hand, Conrad's campaign in Trentino was off to a rolling start. The Italian First Army had been ravaged, and Conrad's elite Alpine troops were advancing steadily. The two chiefs were thus too enamored by their own successes, and were not about to let their spirits be dampened by tales of Russian mobs. Opposing the Russians in Galicia were four Austro-Hungarian armies, the 4th, 1st, 2nd, and 7th. Additionally, there was the Sud Army, a mixed Austro-German unit consisting of 30,000 men. These five units were collectively known as Army Group Linzingen, commanded by the German general, Alexander von Linzingen. For much of May, General Linzingen had received concerning reports from the front. Recon teams were discovering new sapper trenches every night, and on a handful of occasions, opposing patrols bumped into one another, illuminating the night sky with the flash of artillery and rifle fire. In a predominantly quiet sector, all these hinted of imposing danger. Daytime, too, produced its share of warnings. Russian airplanes buzzed around morning, noon, and night. Ranging shots from Russian artillery were also heard howling in the distance. Although Linsingen believed it was nothing to worry about, he too believed in Russian inferiority, he did raise the issue to the higher-ups. But with Conrad and Falkenhayn focused on their own operations, he was told there was little to spare. Linzigen's request for additional shell to disrupt Russian efforts was denied. Unfortunately for Linzigen, a lack of sympathy from the chiefs was the least of his problems. He also had the unfortunate distinction of having a royal heir under his charge. Commanding the Austro-Hungarian 4th Army, positioned between the towns of Lusk and Koval, was Archduke Joseph Ferdinand. Archduke Ferdinand was the godson of Kaiser Wilhelm, and used his royal connections to remain an army commander, despite having no real credentials of his own. More concerned with hunting, womanizing, and an unhealthy obsession with balloons, Ferdinand was arrogant and unwilling to listen to the advice of others. He had pulled a few strings and managed to keep his 4th army free from German oversight. Ferdinand was frequently late to meetings and was totally indifferent to the matters at hand. He probably chewed gum loudly and listened to his music in public without headphones too. Linsingen found him impossible to work with, and their working relationship was so poor that they communicated through telegram only. Now you might be asking, why am I bringing this up? Well not only would Joseph's 4th army bear the brunt of Brusilov's sledgehammer, but the start date of the offensive, June the 4th, marked Joseph's 44th birthday. So happy early birthday Joseph. To celebrate the occasion, his wife, the Archduchess Isabella, was planning a lavish dinner party at Teschen Castle. One of the invitees was Conrad himself. Dismissing the Russians and happy with events in Trentino, the commander-in-chief of Austria-Hungary accepted the invite. He was due for some relaxation, and things appeared to be on the upswing. As Conrad put on his best dinner jacket, 650,000 Russian troops, backed by 2,000 guns, were preparing to move. On June the 2nd, word arrived of the German victory off the Jutland coast, while a renewed offensive at Verdun had put the French army on its heels. But then, 1,700 kilometers away, the Russian batteries would roar to life. In his history of the Second World War, Winston Churchill wrote of the man who tried to give powder to the bear. He mixed the powder with the greatest care, making sure not only the ingredients but the proportions were absolutely correct. He rolled it up in a large paper spill, and was about to blow it down the bear's throat. But the bear blew first. It began as a small blip, nothing serious. But as it rose to an unholy crescendo, the combatants found themselves not only in the largest battle of the Great War, but at a turning point in world history. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter, at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. There are a number of ways to support the show. The first is by making a donation through our website. This will help cover the cost of acquiring sources, and ensure the show delivers the most accurate and up-to-date research available. Or, you can look us up on iTunes and leave a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcasts based on user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we will place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings, and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 43 of the Great War Podcast, and we'll see you again shortly.